How do you find a suspect in a criminal case? Well, you start by finding some clues. What if those clues were digital, online? Well, you do much of the same. While producing this episode, a 21-year-old National Guard airman was arrested and alleged to have photographed and distributed copies of classified U.S. military material on social media, namely Discord. Here's U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas Teixeira in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. He will have an initial appearance at the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts. I want to thank the FBI, Justice Department prosecutors, and our colleagues at the Department of Defense for their diligent work on this case. Once the classified documents were found online, there was an effort both by law enforcement and the media to help identify the leaker. And they did. Relatively quickly, they used something known as open source intelligence, or OSINT. And I'm going to be talking a lot about OSINT in this episode. In this particular case, the alleged leaker was prolific on social media. And that's understandable, given his age. So the investigators and reporters, they had a name pretty quickly. But could they connect this name to the evidence that they had? Turns out they could. It seems some of the classified materials were photographed on a marble countertop, much like a kitchen countertop. And investigators looked to see if there were any social media of that kitchen in the house where his parents lived. And there were. The marble countertop in the kitchen of the suspect's house matched the marble striations on the classified document photos. That, of course, was not all. But it's an example of how someone, anyone on the internet, can take a photograph or a blog post or a Yelp review from social media or some other seemingly random open source and connect it back to an individual. In this episode, I'll introduce you to someone who's been doing this online investigative work for over 20 years. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vamosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about online criminal investigations conducted by someone who's been on the inside of the InfoSec community, and how your social media posts, no matter how good you think you are about hiding, can reveal a lot about your true identity. This is a slightly different topic for the hacker mind in that I'm going to be discussing some rather violent crimes, but always from the viewpoint of an online investigator, a hacker's eye view on catching the bad actor living in the real world. It's not graphic and there's no profanity. I'd never do that. Still, I wanted to give you a heads up that this episode may be a bit darker than usual. My name is Daniel Clemens. I'm CEO of Shadow Dragon, and I'm just an old school hacker guy. I, th- I think Daniel's being a bit humble. 
He's been around the hacking scene since the late 1990s. He knows a few people, and he's contributed a lot to the industry. He's currently running two companies, one a pen testing company, and the other one focused on OSINT, which is what we're going to talk about here. Shadow Dragon is a company that builds innovative open source intelligence tools to help the investigator focus on the information that's relevant. Again, you may not have heard of Daniel before this podcast, but he's been around the InfoSec community for decades. He's just not standing on some soapbox, shouting out to the world his many accomplishments on social media like some people in InfoSec are doing today. No, Daniel, he keeps a low profile. I I do. I do. And, and usually I kind of like just kind of keep hidden away, I guess, just from personality, I, uh, I'm not a huge blogger. I'm not a huge get out there on social media type of guy. So I'm, I'm more than willing to share different stories as, as long as you can kind of provide the guidance of where you want it to go. You know, I've, I've had a lot of good, fortunate experiences over the years in my career, and it's, it's helped with a lot of these experiences, you know? So one of the things I'm doing with the hacker mind is reclaiming the word hacker. There's this pejorative media perception of it. They're antisocial, that they all wear hoodies. Hello, friend. That's lame. Maybe I should give you a name, but that's a slippery slope. You're only in my head. We have to remember that. Okay, to be honest, I am wearing a hoodie right now, but it's cold where I am. So in order to dispel some of these other notions, let's find out more about Daniel himself. I mean, he started hacking in the 1990s. So where in the country did he begin? So I was in, um, I was, I was in San Francisco for a short period of time. And then um, before that, I was in Colorado, Durango, Colorado. So I worked for an ISP there called Frontier Internet for a few years in high school and then after high school. And uh, before that, I lived in Texas. So um, that's that's kind of my journey as far as the, the different spaces that I was interfacing with the computer and, and trying to get on the internet at different times. So was he active on bulletin boards and IRC? A few bulletin boards. And then um, mainly I would get on to like the different, there's VAC systems um, which then I, you know, I could configure to get on the internet, you know? Um, so usually my, my mode was find a college student, get an account, dial up. And then, um, you know, then I was on the internet and then get on IRC and, and whatnot. So spent a lot of time on IRC when I was a kid, more than bulletin boards, but Bulletin boards were cool, you know? My point in interviewing Daniel is that I want to hear some real stories about criminals online, how things really happen in the real world. I want to correct some of the FUD that I see in the media, that hackers are driven largely by money and ego. That's not always the case. I love that because now it's, it's very different. And I remember probably 2002, 2003-ish, complaining when we, when I think it was the last year that we were at Alexa, Alexis park for DEF CON. And, um, 
I remember complaining like, oh my gosh, there's more than a thousand people here. That was the complaint of the day. And, um, but really when I look back on that, you know, like that was a, a shifting time for, for how people saw and, and treated the word hacker. You know, when, when I grew up, um, hacker was more about the pursuit of knowledge and that that pursuit of knowledge because it was harder to find things there weren't search engines you had to you had to figure out how to configure kermit and get passwords to get onto the local vax and you had to you know find the guy who was the sysadmin who maybe you could you know get all the manuals um that pursuit in itself created a few different things long-term memory i think um which i think we see a lot of the opposite things being true in the workforce now where, Oh, I can't remember this or, you know, um, the, the pursuit really, I think has a lot of biological impacts in how information is stored, how it's treated, how you, how you experience, um, the dopamine hit when you learn something new. I hadn't thought about that, but Daniel's right. There used to be this rush when you figured something out, and more to the point, when you saw something work. You got into a network, and you ran a program, and it didn't crash. Well, that doesn't happen as often today, in part because things are well-documented, not like the Dark Ages, when you had to literally go dumpster diving to find old manuals. Now you can just Google most things. It's not quite the same. Right? Um, because that's what got me in... in from the very beginning was that, oh, you know, I'm going to pursue this. I'm, I, 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 I've discovered something and I've also learned something in the process. And it was, it was a longer tedious task at hand. So, um, I do think that the word hacker has been hijacked. I, I, I joke with people now where they're like, so what do you do? And I'm like, I'm kind of an old hacker. And it, depending on the audience, it, it goes different ways, right? Um, uh, it's either good or bad, but there's, it, it's more of, you know, there's a work ethic behind it, right? There's, there's a, a method, a countercultural method to it that isn't defined by a group dynamic. It's a personal dynamic, you know, it's, and that's what the old 2600 used to be like. Again, Daniel is a bona fide old school hacker. Daniel's first black hat was in 1999. Mine was in 2000. And we both know some of the same people in the industry. Like I remember, I think it was like 1999, I'd met Jeff Moss and he was going to come in and be, um, he was interviewing to be my boss. I was, I was living in uh, Alameda off of the Navy base there. Um, so he invites me to go to that, you know, one of those first black hats. And um, Doug Song was sitting doing his his thing on uh, checkpoint firewall bypass. I'm sitting there, and um, a guy named Jeff Nathan comes sits next to me. And for those that don't know, Jeff had written um, the ARP Watch module in Snort um, when Sourcefire was just starting. He was at um, a company called Hiver World at the time. He sits down next to me and he sees I've got TCPIP illustrated and I'm just nervous being around all these super nerds, you know? And, um, he goes, Hey man, 
I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to stick with me. We're going to go to every talk and I'm going to tell you what you don't know for the whole day. I didn't know the guy, you know, and, and I don't think that that happens now that cause it, I mean, there's a billion people, right. But, um, where, where heavy, heavy hitter guys come in and really they're, they're other centered. They want to extend the, the curiosity. They want to, um, help others. And, and you see some of that in some of the, you know, the, the hacker villages and stuff like that. I think those are cool, but it, it definitely was a different time. And I'm, I'm nostalgic about it. You know, it was, a, it was a great time. I mean, I loved it. As I've said, Daniel has over 20 years amassed in a lot of real-world experience. In fact, over the years, he has helped solve or at least investigate the backgrounds of individuals involved in some crimes, crimes we have all heard about. And it started quite innocently. I guess the investigative part of my career was just things. I I was slowly kind of getting sucked in from... um, doing analytical work to, you know, Hey, can you look at, at, um, what do you think about when you see this? You know, there was a, a hacker kid, um, right when the Napster movement, um, anti Napster pro Napster movement was going on named pimp shiz. He went and defaced a bunch of websites. And, and, um, that was one of the first cases I was hired from a, a, you know, a corporate corporation that had been defaced asking, if I could analyze, you know, what happened there. So it went from just analyzing what happened to, you know, hey, can you figure out, we want to get this guy arrested or whatever. And so I thought, well, yeah, well, we figured out how he, how he, you know, defaced a bunch of web pages and um, uh, myself and another gentleman um, got on IRC and, and, you know, ask lots of questions and then could triangulate kind of where he was. Um, so that was one of the first ones. And then the next one um, I was asked, um, it was a, actually a child, child exploitation case. Oh, here's where it starts to get dark pretty fast. Basically, in child exploitation cases, criminals exchange photos of underage individuals and or even sell access to them, which is human trafficking. One of the ways in which these individuals reach out to each other and their clients is through the internet. And that's where people like Daniel can find the breadcrumbs such as email aliases and social media posts that ultimately lead back to the actual names of the people who are responsible. That's not always as easy as it sounds. Basically, they just gave me, you remember back in Windows, they had the index.dat files that had some history in it and and so they said, what can you do with this? You know, and I said, well, I'll just I put it into my little Linux terminal and did strings dash a on it and uh, pulled up all the different uh, groups that, that they were joining. And uh, that actually turned into a, a case called Operation Candyman, where um, I think there was over 5000 um, pedophiles arrested in, in, a, in a fairly short amount of time. Here's the former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft in 2002. Today, we're announcing that this circle of criminals has been disbanded and their illicit website shut down. Forty individuals in 20 states are now in custody, with another 50 expected by week's end. They include members of the clergy, 
law enforcement officers, a nurse, a teacher's aide, a school bus driver, and others entrusted with protecting, nurturing, and educating the American youth. So that was the first time where I thought, wow, you know, that was, I was just doing the things I normally do, being curious. And um, shortly thereafter, um, I helped co-start an InfraGuard chapter for a, a little bit of time. The FBI's InfraGuard is a public-private organization where individuals and companies both join and share and receive information from the FBI. How cool is that? And really, I was just starting that in, in the vein of old, you know, DEF CON and, and 2600 stuff where it was, we should share information. And um, so I had, uh, at the time, uh, a job where, you know, I wasn't being appreciated for my skills very much, but I, I was given a, a class A network and I deployed as many snort sensors on it all over. And... Um, so this was right right before Code Red hit. Okay, the timing was great for Daniel. For those of you who know or remember, Code Red was a computer worm that exploits a vulnerability in Microsoft's Internet Information Server, or IIS. I remember writing about this for ZDNet at the time. It's kind of clever in that it actually stopped spreading all by itself. In other words, it had its own self-destruct mechanism. But... While it was raging, it was amazing how it compromised so many computers, and they were building a botnet to attack one particular target, the White House in the United States. But until somebody looked at the code, that target, it wasn't obvious. And so Code Red hit, and I had all my sensors up. Mark Mafriat from EI posted debug track. Um, hey, there's this, you know, it looks like this, this vulnerability is being exploited. And I, and I was able to respond on the mailing list saying, hey, I've got packet captures of it. Went, went back home that night. I think he was reversing it. And then I was, you know, me and a friend were also reversing it that night and um, found the IP addresses that they had hard-coded in there. And, and I just handed it over to um, my friend and he, he knew someone at the FBI and they handed it off. And, and apparently, you know, that kind of escalated until they, they moved those IP addresses so whitehouse.gov wasn't attacked. And here's Daniel being humble once again. Unfortunately, these are just one-offs. Daniel, he had a day job. And that's just being nerdy, you know. Um, and uh, I started a small mailing list after that called Packet Ninjas. And um, it was just there to, you know, bring people together. Let's analyze stuff. Let's analyze malware. Let's analyze exploits. Um, let's take apart packet captures, you know, Project HoneyNet was going well. Um, that was really fun, all those exercises, the honeypot or HoneyNet challenges, I think that's what they were called then. So Daniel changed his day job. Um, and then uh, I, I'd been hired into another job at a corporation called HealthSouth. They were one of the first companies that had been um, charged by the Department of Justice for um, basically Sarbanes-Oxley violations to the tune of, you know, $4 billion or something. And so uh, myself and another uh, individual named Rob Farrell, we were brought in to um, start a security team 
And so we were basically, you know, we started doing enterprise monitoring, um, packet captures, you know, decryption, um, replaying all the events, uh, incident response, all the assessment work that it was, it was a playground, you know, I got to do everything. And then, um, they started sending me to, you know, get training on how to formally do forensics and get all the software and all that kind of stuff. And so I started doing that, um, you know, so I, I started just looking into as many things as possible, you know, and, um, you know, I was probably 22, you know, um, at this huge enterprise, <laughs> just, it was a field day for me. I loved it, you know, and, um, that was the beginning of really kind of, I guess the foundations for moving between assessment, you know, offensive stuff and investigative stuff. And, from my my perspective, both were fairly the same. Um, it was just a different outcome and different tools. We often hear how a criminal hacker would use some of the same tools offensively, defensively, and even investigatively, like a knife. It can be used for both good and bad. So I guess a criminal hacker, yeah, they were using, um, you know, whatever means they could to get access to things. But from my perspective, since I already had a background in, and, you know, building exploits, um, analyzing those things, um, I was big on, you know, um, protocol analysis. Um, when it came to forensics, the, the analysis workflow for doing forensics and um, investigations in general wasn't that much different than trying to find a vulnerability in an application um, from a high level perspective, right? So, you know, like with, you know, assessing, assessing uh, an application, you know, you're looking for all the, all the small vulnerabilities, the, the medium, the low, the high, um, and then stepping back and letting your subconscious kind of fill the gaps there on how to put together the pieces. Um, forensic, so that's a sequential process and then a visual spatial process of, of, of creativity. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like investigations were similar because you have a very sequential structured process, but then you have to step back and there's this visual spatial correlation that you have to start putting things together and have multiple elements to support a theory. And um, to me, that was very, those disciplines were just two sides of the same coin it, because it was still, you're, you're still dealing with memory. You're still dealing with computers. You're still dealing with different artifacts, you know, um, and they're just different tool sets really. Uh, so that was, that, that's where I started my first company was just thinking that would be normal. You know, the, that the merging of those two disciplines was normal. Um, however, I was a little tone deaf to how that wasn't normal. So the tools aren't enough. You need to have some creativity with it. You need to have the ability to think like a suspect and imagine their world. How does that play into Daniel's work? 
Yeah. So, so open source intelligence, it, a lot of that for us is, is target centric. And, and what I mean by that is um, I may have one or two things that I'm, I, I have a starting point on where I want to enumerate breadcrumbs on somebody online. That could be an email address, a phone number, an alias, and then it could be a name, but usually that's not what you have. You're, you're trying to get to a name or a location. And so usually when I'm looking at open source intelligence, you know, like, a, you know, a, an email address is going to tie to a Skype account. A Skype account is going to tie to an alias. An alias is going to tie to a Yelp account, you know, and then the Yelp account, Yelp, Yelp or food review sites or adult websites or anything where there's pleasure. And that could be likes or dislikes or, you know, anything like that um, on a social media platform. It, it opens up the opportunity that um, the person that usually put in those Yelp reviews is usually in a heightened state of emotion, of pleasure or rage, where operational security levels are, are much lower. In InfoSec, we talk a lot about OPSEC, good and bad. Remember that when you're in a heightened state of emotion, either pleasure or rage, you're bound to have some bad operational security. You let your guard down. This is when criminals will tip their hand and reveal something of themselves online. From my perspective, the value of open source intelligence in that vein is people are making assumptions and assumptions are the mother of all mess ups. And that's where we adapt to that situation with open source intelligence and think, you know, our, our, our strategy is let's go find everything in the universe that fits a few different human nature patterns because human nature won't change. And then um, someone's going to make the assumption who's going to put together these 200 different sites and these little breadcrumbs. Well, we did, you know, so it, it creates this very interesting, you know, mosaic when you start looking at it um, by, you know, Hey, I, I'm going to pivot on an email address to an alias to a phone number and, and every small piece of information that's on every single site, there's always something. And so what, what we found is, is sites like, you know, your Yelp or your food review sites, those are very helpful in an investigation to, to give an approximation of where that person might live and what their patterns of life are. I wondered if Daniel's done this in real life. He provides an example. One of my favorite stories is is catching a human trafficker, and um, what what he had done and where he was in his story was, you know, when I started looking into him, he's 24, 25 years old, um, hardened criminal. He's he's being searched for by law enforcement, holding people against their will. I mean, selling drugs um, and engaged in human trafficking. So how does Daniel start to find someone who doesn't want to be found? I end up just kind of trying to build a picture of, well, if I was this guy, where would I be? What would I do? What does my day look like? And contrasting as many questions as you can about a target to 
what your old school methodology of recon is on a on a web server or a network it's still you know you're still looking for as many clues as you possibly can to to build an attack pattern and so when i when i kept looking into this guy i just thought well let's just keep rolling back in time until i found a picture of him with all of his friends mm-hmm. in high school and they all had i found a they're like myspace page where they were a rap a rap crew you know they had their own rap gang uh but they all had aliases you know so i just slowly started taking apart every single alias to figure out who the real person is look at the the photos look at you know reverse photo image searches and you know mapping those those folks together until i could find the primary target's mother and their original facebook page so i had a myspace page and then i found a facebook page and um the only person who liked it was his mom so um that uh, putting all those clues together and going back in time old data is really helpful with open source intelligence because it helps us create a story before operational security kind of took took root and um that was a key point in figuring out, you know, where this guy really lived and um, where he was close to in proximity, you know, at least, you know, parts of a city where we could say, hey, we need somebody to go in there and try to do surveillance. Think about it. Have you ever encountered anybody who has been fairly meticulous from an early stage in only putting out what they want online so that the real world identity could be hidden? Given what we said about emotion creating bad OPSEC, I would imagine someone like this would have to be unemotional and flat. Only then could you literally be an enigma or a cold-blooded killer. In the next section, we're going to talk about a few mass murderers. And I want to be clear, shortly after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, the mainstream media adopted a policy of not naming the mass shooter. This is done in part to rob the person of any notoriety. And I agree, they're not heroes, they're cowards. So I'm editing out the names of the mass murderers mentioned in this next section. It's relevant that we talk about them because some of these individuals strive to have zero profiles online. And given to emotion, either rage or pleasure, they failed. Yeah, there's there's always the zero profile profile, right? So that's I would say that's fairly rare. And um, but that in itself creates its own profile. I would one of the good examples I would say somebody that had really good operational security was the Vegas shooter. In a matter of seconds, a country music festival turned tragic, a storm of gunfire raining down upon an innocent crowd. He was shooting everybody, and there was dead people everywhere, and I don't even know what was happening. There was just, he was just shooting randomly. It started at 10.08 p.m. The first reports of shots fired as singer Jason Aldean performed. 
Initially, there was confusion, many wondering if the sounds were part of the show. It's fireworks. It's fireworks. Stop. It's fireworks. But they quickly realized what was happening. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the fairgrounds. A gunman perched on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Resort had opened fire on 22,000 concert goers. This mass killing hits close to home for the InfoSec community. The Las Vegas shooter had a room on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. This is the hotel where the annual Black Hat USA conference is held. This mass shooting is also why hotels along the Strip in Las Vegas now claim the right to enter your room at any time during your stay to look for weapons. The shooter on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel was able to bring suitcases full of weapons into his room and then fire countless rounds into a crowd of 22,000 gathered across the street for a country and western concert. 58 people died. It is the largest mass shooting in U.S. history so far. What intrigued Daniel was he wanted to see what he could find about that person's past. And for the most part, the shooter was an enigma very cleverly hiding his identity for years. The guy who did the active shooter situation there, I was very curious about who he was, what he did, what we could find um, after that event, because he was already deceased um, once, you know, his name was released and everything. And um, he had really good operational security, but there were little things that he had, he, he would do organization so i started off with i had burner phones that he had and i had email addresses that i could get out of you know different you know online things that were re released about him uh, during the case and really just pivot on an email address and aliases and then took each one of the email addresses i had on him and and took apart the email address into two things one and a turn it into an alias and then one an email address. And what I found was um, he would reuse the same aliases in the cities that he had bought property from. So it was always, if I could find property he purchased in a city, it would be part of the address would be the, the alias he used for that time that he was in that city, which was real. it was a very weird, like, He's a very organized, very methodical person, especially when it came to OPSEC. We often hear about premeditation. It sounds like this shooter planned well in advance. He even thought about hiding his identity when it came to bullets that he used. Like he did crazy stuff like um, he bought reloaded ammunition from a guy, I think in Phoenix. And when he did that, he wore um, latex gloves and then his fingerprints weren't on the actual bullets in the shell case or the, the shell casings that he shot at people, which is a really strange thing to me. Um, and so I could just see this patternality of there was a high, le high level of operational security, but then he was super organized about it. Um, so, you don't see that very often, you know? Um, and then if there's zero, there's no pattern whatsoever, the, the next question is, okay, now let's start looking into obituaries. Let's start looking into, 
um, anything that can give us a, a line on the family, because there's going to be a girlfriend, there's going to be a mom, there's going to be a dad somewhere. And, and operational security is only as good as the weakest link. Daniel's quick to mention that this individual is rare. Especially nowadays with the advent of social media and, and those type of things, people want to be connected online. They believe that that's how they should react to life, I guess. Um, and so there's always a digital footprint, right? Most, like 99% of the time. But every now and then there's not that huge digital footprint. Daniel also mentioned a more recent case, an alleged murderer in Idaho. The Idaho killer guy that, that was a few weeks ago, and I forget his name. It's okay that we don't know his name. Um, I was able to find his Instagram account. And his Instagram account, he was following two of the victims. So um, that was interesting. And then the other interesting about thing about him was most of the the females he was following um, gave me insights into he's living a very um, objective. He objectifies women a great deal. Like there's a lot of fantasy probably in his life um, and probably not a lot of courage. So I would infer there's probably, you know, an, an equal amount of rage, you know? Um, so that, that paternality, even though he had a very small footprint, that was very similar to the, the Vegas shooter. Cause when we did find some of his, um, hidden profiles, like he had a deviant art account, he was into child exploitation stuff and, um, some, some very strange, um, I don't know, uh, proclivities, I guess is, is the word, um, uh, enough to, to put him in the category of he's, he's very pleasure seeking and very objectifying of everything around him. It's all for him. It's very narcissistic. Um, and so, um, I, I have seen that in a few different cases over, over time. That's not to say that Daniel hasn't seen someone who is good at hiding themselves. They do exist. And often they're spooks. They're professional spies with some tradecraft. But as far as the zero profile stuff, um, every now and then you'll see it with some spooks, you know, like there's a, a certain patternality that, that we'll see with folks that are kind of spooky or they might work be working for an intelligence agency. And um, you can see that uh, especially for folks that are under the age of 40 and then over the age of 40. So a lot of times the over the age of 40 spooks, they'll they'll have operational security issues because they made assumptions at some point. And then there's there they didn't have any trade craft um, training on social media and not just social media, but how they present themselves online. And it's it's pretty fascinating because I would I would dare say I think a lot of the the Russian folks getting identified in countries is probably just laziness, you know. At the beginning of this podcast, Daniel mentioned some of his early work. Remember, he hung out with one of the creators of Snort at Black Hat, and then later had his own snort listeners out on the internet so he could contribute to the Code Red investigation when that happened. 
How much of this was Daniel working on his own, and how much of this was outreach from, say, the law enforcement community? I would say pretty much 100% my own curiosity. I That's just how I am. You know, um, there's been a few cases where corporations have, have reached out and asked, saying, hey, you know, like, like when Anonymous was doing DDoS attacks, uh, we got a call from um, one of the big financial institutions getting hit saying, hey, can you look into this? And um, looked into that that tool and and really looked for static values and and, and protocol implementation errors in, in HTTP and how they, like, this is for the LOIC tool and just wrote up, you know, hey, this is where they put the protocol wrong to, you know, you can identify it every time it comes over the wire. The Low Orbit Ionic Cannon, or LOIC, is an open source stress test for websites when it's in the hands of a pen tester. Basically, it provides a denial of service or a distributed denial of service attack, but in the hands of an activist, someone who is actively trying to shut a website down to make a political point, it's powerful. The group Anonymous used LOIC to go after the Church of Scientology for its alleged abuses. And for an attack on the recording industry company, it perceived to be blocking free speech. And later, in Operation Payback, an attack on financial institutions that blocked payment to Julian Assange's WikiLeaks site. It was not Anonymous's only tool, however. That in turn turned into like, oh, well, we want you to do this for every tool that they do and, um, and, and try to monitor that. And so, uh, but yeah, so it was that corporations reaching out have been more of more of the norm and um you know usually that's between somewhere between someone at at some point had been on one of my old mailing lists a long time ago or it's just word of mouth and you know i feel very fortunate to to receive the call and and jump in the details because i think it's cool you know Going into this interview, I kind of imagine that with all that Daniel has done, maybe he's been helping the FBI all along, and they've been leveraging his experience and knowledge from time to time. He did start an InfoGuard chapter, right? Right, yeah. And, I mean, I think they're an interesting organization. They, I, I'm not a fan, you know, on this side of life of the InfoGuard organization myself. I, I haven't ever seen them set forth a goal and accomplish it so it kind of makes me a little more suspect of like what was the in original intent of the infrared organization to, to begin with it seems like it was just there to have a network of people to to try to approach as sources and then you know not pay any fair fair uh, market prices on any consulting you know and so that's kind of my angst against that whole system and um, some of the FBI in general, you know, like I think that the way that they treat people, um, just in the information security community is, is a little, I don't know, it's entitled, you know, and, um, they don't, they want everything for free and, and that's just not going to happen. That's, you know, I got kids. I have a business. So so what about the Secret Service side of the house? I wonder what Daniel thought of the Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or ISAC. 
the ice hacks they've been really good yeah so um and and i think some of the self-policing in the ice hacks um with the analyst for the members of the ice hacks has been really good to keep out people within the industry that are there to steal ideas from other people right so i know that the ISACs have done a pretty good job there on on that front on self-policing that at other areas you know other groups and information sharing groups have not uh which you know can can put different people in different situations where they may not want to participate anymore if there's going to be somebody stealing their ideas and giving it to let's say the FBI or giving it to um, somebody to make themselves look cool. Um, I think they've done a really good job. So given his rich background, how has Daniel rolled some of this knowledge and experience into his current companies? Gosh, well, um, very quietly. So I, that's, that's a hard question. Um, because it wasn't until last year. So I, you know, I have two companies, Packet Ninjas, and those guys just do assessments and find vulnerabilities and applications. And then um, Shadow Dragon, and that's the open source intelligence stuff. Um, in both areas, you know, we never had sales guys until last year. So that's going on from like 2006 until last year. And the strategy was just do a good job and, um, we're, we're never going to be good at blogging. We're not going to be good at external expression. We're just, that's not who we are. And that's not who I am. Um, I'm good on conversations like this where somebody can pull stuff out and we can have, I, I, I like the conversation. Um, but as far as trying to turn that into a machine um, that demands money, that's I'm not good at that. I never was. Um, so how all that put to how that all kind of combined over the years was just I tried to run things as a business, um, do the best job that we can, let let our work speak for itself. Not don't look at what the competition is doing because that's not going to define your own reality. Define your own reality and um, strive for excellence. So um, those were some of the principles that I kind of like gravitated towards as building blocks. And then, you know, um, quiet confidence will be my strength was another big idea. I'm wondering if there's increased competition among pen testers, if that's the reason why he brought in a sales team no um well i think that there's always competition but in the end it doesn't matter that there's more competition what matters is you're selling trust and i think that that's what a lot of people sometimes forget is you know even though like you know we've got over 40 people in shadow dragon now and we have salespeople and all that kind of stuff um i still have to hammer on the guys like look you know if any of the sales guys get broy and salesy no it's about grit you're selling trust buddy 
you know, and the moment you start selling a lightsaber that we don't have, you're out because we don't sell lightsabers. We don't sell, we don't sell grandiose stuff, you know, and the, the same thing for, you know, packet ninjas, you know, those guys, they always have more work than they can handle. And, um, the same thing at shadow dragon. Um, we're always busy, but we're, we're not busy trying to make artificial waves, you know? Um, and I don't think that's going to ever change because, you know, back to, you know, my whole point is we're selling trust, you know, I got to be able to look somebody in the eye and be like, yeah, you know what? That does suck. Or, you know, uh, this is, this is the stuff. This is how you want to put it together. You might not like it. You might like it. I don't know. You know? Um, so I think we got lucky on a few things. Um, I, I was stubborn on some architecture and design stuff that we've put together over the years. And then, um, I was very particular about the engineers that we hired and, um, just holding them to a high standard. I really like the idea of merit, that if you're good at what you're doing, you should advance. Too often, though, we see people who are not good at what they do get promoted ahead of us, and that's not right. If you're striving to always be the best, you should be rewarded. For Daniel, the quest for success started at a very early age. Kind of rolling back in time, back to growing up, I had a... Uh, I went to a private school and so did our CTO, Elliot Anderson. We went to the same school actually. And um, it was a self-paced learning. And you taught yourself how to learn really. There were week daily goals, weekly goals, quarterly goals. You did all the work yourself and you took the test in front of the teacher. But if you got an 89, it was an S. I thought that was normal my entire life until, you know, probably my mid twenties. And, and, um, uh, I got, I get married and my wife and I are talking cause we had re-met later on in life. We went to the same school together as well. And I was like, man, you know, like sometimes we have high expectations, you know, she's like, I think it's that 89 is an F stuff, you know? <laughs> and so, um, I think that's one element that is is definitely, you know, infused into management, our management style here at, at Shadow Dragon, um, as well as kind of like this old school Texas style jump, you know, jump in the deep end type mentality. And if you need help, let us know. But, you know, um, nobody's going to babysit you. Um, we just expect if you're failing, you'll learn and you'll ask for help and we'll help you as a team, you know. Around the time of this interview, Matt Blaze was tooting on Mastodon about phone freaking. He said a lot of people got that part of history wrong. It's a mischaracterization, he said, that phone freaking was to get inexpensive toll costs so that you could get to the big computers. He said, no, they were just learning. They were just wanting to explore the phone networks themselves. And I guess we kind of miss that. Yeah, learning and curiosity. Curiosity, I mean, I love when I'm interviewing guys and I can see that spark, you know, like that spark is a rarity and you, you have to look for it. 
Um, I would I would also go out on a limb too um, and encourage the the listeners that are running security teams look for the guys also that are on the spectrum. You know, those guys have spark. Those guys have curiosity, and they're going to be they might be a little harder to manage, but oh my goodness, you know your your team is going to explode. I I can't say that enough. Because I think a lot of times people are going to look for like, I want a rock star or I want somebody to fit the slot that's just perfect. But hey, go off the beaten path just a little bit. And there's some of the spark coming from that group of folks is just amazing. And and I love it. I love that whole process. And I think too, like if there's a way that we could recreate part of the 90s, I think that there's a space for that, you know. I, I I keep I keep joking that someday I wanna I wanna have like this idea of 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 having a hacker house, and the hacker house is you know a typical you know old Victorian four story house, and at the bottom level are the guys that have just come into college or freshmen. The top level are the guys getting their masters. And the house only can have 10 to 15 people, but as they're growing in their capabilities with hardware and network and, you know, messing around with CPU architecture and computer science and life skills, they eventually emerge to, to being on the top level of the house. It's treated like an equities problem, right? Like we know that this is going to mature over this amount of time and and then get the sponsors to pay for that which would be you know either the government sponsors or the corporations or what whatnot you know maybe with a nonprofit that builds these at different universities and and puts some curriculum around it you know and um i think there's a way that we could recreate the 90s if i'm young today and i hear this podcast and i want I want to be like Daniel. What do I do? What would be Daniel's recommendations today? Because it's not the 1990s and it's not even the early 2000s. I would say, you know, like, so we, we have a few different interns um, that, that do come in and we give them different goals and tasks, you know? So some of the things that I do ask for to begin with is like, what are you doing in your free time um, at home with technology? And then what are you, um, how have you used technology in your own personal life to make it better? And then I also start asking them like, you know, what are you trying to pursue? What do you want to pursue? And if they're, if they're, if they're just barely receptive on any suggestions of, of books to read um, or, you know, old frack articles to, to, to read, you know, then I'm then I have something to work with. But if they don't take any advice at all and they just think, oh, I've got this certification, I've got this, you know, these certifications and this these, you know, degrees, then usually they're not listening and they don't wanna they don't wanna learn anyway. You know, so it's really do you wanna have a dialogue and then do you wanna be passionate about it? And so I I always tell my kids, I'm like, look, you know, like I didn't finish college, but I was a nerd like every day of my life for all of my 20s and, you know, obvious 30s as well. 
but um, you're going to spend, if you spend time on it, you're going to, you know, it's going to take you to places you never thought. You know, I, I was just a punk kid with dyed red hair looking at TCP IP illustrated, you know, and trying to learn that. And then, you know, 20 years later, tracking down human traffickers with technology I made for a totally different objective. And, and, you know, so like when, when I felt that emotional reality, that was a, you know, the hard the hard work pays off in the end and you never know where it's going to take you, you know, and, and just don't work 35 hours a week, right? Like show up on time. I mean, these are some basic life skills, but they got, you got to say it. I'd like to thank Daniel Clemens for getting all nostalgic with me about the early days of computer hacking and also sharing his incredible investigative skills in uncovering the backgrounds of some of the criminals that we often see in the news. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mine is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Famosi.